0: John six thirty five through 40 This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have, you have seen me, and still you do not believe me. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Now well, Today we're going to come back, obviously, to John 6, and uh, uh, we're going to be looking at that together. So as we do, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord to give us light, uh, that the light of his countenance would shine upon us as we sit under his word. Father, we do pray for that, and uh, we thank you. Thank you that Jesus Christ has come into this world to reconcile us to you, that in Christ you were reconciling the world to yourself. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation that cries out to each one of us, be reconciled to God. I pray, Father, that we would in our hearts and minds be reconciled to you today through Christ. And I ask that your word would minister to us where we are, that you would uh, really impact us with the glory and the beauty of Christ today. What more could we ask for, Father, than that you would allow us to see your glory shining from his face in a brighter way, and that you would empower us to not only behold him more clearly, but believe in him more firmly. Father, work in us, revive us, bring us out of the muck and the mire, and help us stand in the glorious truths of the gospel. For those who are not able to be among us today, with many who are sick and who are out, I pray that you would bless them, or that you would minister to their souls where they are, that you would let them remember that They are not forgotten by you, and also that you would instill in them a deeper hunger and desire and longing to be restored to the corporate fellowship of your people. God, I I ask that the blessing of fellowshipping with you, with your people corporately, would be of such an experiential, palpable nature (laughs) that when we are not able to be here, you would leave us hungry and thirsty to be restored. And uh, and We pray for them. We ask you to be with them, Lord, and bring them back to us next week, healthy and uh, full of a desire to worship your holy name in the company of the saints. Father, bless us as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for a number of weeks, we've, um, we've been walking through uh, John chapter 6 in our journey through the Gospel of John. I'm sorry, these may just have to pop on and off today. It's one of them days where my eyes are bouncing everywhere, so thanks for your grace and patience. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've just kind of been pausing for a significant time uh, walking through John chapter 6, and the reason why we've been lingering in John chapter 6 is because of a difficult teaching that Jesus brings up here in this chapter. Um, we all know that to be the issue of, of election uh, and God's sovereignty and salvation. And uh, I, I think it's important for us to notice and to, and to make sure that we remember that Jesus gives us his clearest teaching on the on the reality of election and God's sovereignty and salvation within the context of unbelief. So it's, it's to a group of people who are not believing in him that he begins to teach them and give them the, the clearest teaching that we have from Christ on the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty and salvation. It's to a people who are not believing in him that he gives that teaching. I think that's that's really important and significant for us to remember. It was to smack their hubris and their arrogance that was rising up against him in judgment. It was to smack that down that Jesus began to teach them about the doctrine of election. And I think that's exactly the impact that the doctrine of election ought to have upon us. It ought to humble us. And, um, well, as we saw in John 6, 29, Jesus says, If you want eternal life with the Father, then you must believe in him. In John 6.30, the crowd didn't think that Jesus had done enough to warrant their faith in him. So they needed to see him do more signs. And then when he would do those signs, then they would believe in Jesus. Now that is a little surprising in light of the the fact that they had already seen Jesus do so many miracles, right? Because, I mean, in John 6, verse 2, that's where we're told the only reason why they were following him to begin with was because of all the signs that he was performing on the sick. They had seen him doing all of these signs to people who were sick. And yet here, they're saying that he hadn't done enough signs for them to believe in him. What a a contradiction there, an inconsistency. And that's not even, right, taking into account this latest miracle of feeding the 5,000 with the five barley loaves, those Twinkie-sized loaves of barley bread and uh, the two fish. So for this crowd, uh, Jesus hadn't done enough for them to believe in him. Now that may have been a good enough excuse in their minds for not believing in Jesus, but when Jesus begins to explain the real reason why they weren't believing in him, it wasn't because he hadn't done enough to convince them. Jesus says in John 3, 36, it wasn't about a lack of signs. They they had heard what he said, and they had already seen him do so many things, and yet they still were not believing, right? And we as human beings, we have this tendency to believe or think that somehow if we can just see things with our own eyes, then we will believe it. We will feel more secure in having faith in it. And yet here you've got these people who Jesus says, "You've, you've been seeing me. You've seen all these things that I've done, and yet you're still not believing in me. So why would another miracle be enough to make you believe if all the other miracles I've already done haven't made you believe? It's like like that in Luke 16, the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man who goes to hell, he's he's in Hades, and he, he speaks to Abraham, and he says, could you just send... Send someone back to my, my brothers and, and let them and warn them of this place so they don't come here. And, and Abraham says in this parable, uh, even, even if one were to rise from the dead and go tell them about this place, if they don't believe the law of Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even that one who rises from the dead. There's no miracle that's going to overcome unbelief except for the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of the new birth. And so Jesus begins to explain in verse 37 the real reason why they were not believing in him, um, which, is, uh, which he, he words this way. He says, All that you, You've seen what I've, what I've been doing, and yet you're still not believing. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Now I just want to notice there the definitive nature of that statement. That is an absolute... Statement. When Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, that is that's pretty clear. There's there's not even a hint of the slightest possibility in that statement that anyone whom the Father has given to the Son will in the end wind up not coming to the Son. Because all whom the Father has given me, what will they do? They will come to me. He doesn't say, and you've got to get this, Jesus does not say to these Pharisees or Jews or whoever else is in this crowd, he doesn't say to them, the Father has given them to me so that they might have an opportunity to come to me. He doesn't say that. He says, the Father's given them to me and they will come to me. It's assured. It's it's a reality that will not fail. They will come. Well, this crowd is not coming to Jesus. So what does that mean? I mean, they're coming to him physically, but they're not coming to him in faith. They're not coming to him in true, sincere belief that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah of Israel and that he is the true and living bread of life. They're, They're coming to him, but they're not coming to him for that reason. So what does that say about that crowd? Well, according to Jesus' statement here, it's, it's telling them that they aren't coming because they weren't given by the Father to the Son. Now, we've already seen some of the ways Jesus unpacks that more fully in this chapter, right? Like uh, being drawn to the, to the Son by the Father, being taught by the Father to come to the Son. John 6, 65, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it has been granted to them by the Father. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. And I won't won't rehash all of that in the same lengthy manner I've done it already. But but today, what I want to do is I just want to draw our focus to this group of people that verse 37 says has been given to the Father. I want to just focus in, zero in on this group of people who have been given to the Father. And I want to ask the question, why has the—or given to the Son by the Father, I mean. So I want to ask the question— um, why has the Father given this group of people to the Son? What's the purpose? Why, why has he entrusted this group into the hands of his Son? And what, what does he want his Son to do with them? Um, I believe that's what Jesus begins to explain to us in verses 37 through 40. And, and I want to I look at those things today. So there are three things that are emphasized in these verses about... Um, the Father's will for this group of people whom He gives to His Son. Three things that He wills to happen concerning this group of people. So notice, notice first of all in John 6, 37 to 38, there's a, first a general statement about the Father's will for this people. Jesus says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, that's very strong language. When Jesus says, I will never cast them out, if you if this is just me taking it from the Greek, if you just took it word for word in its sequential order and translated it as wooden and literally as possible, it would go something like this. I will, I will not ever cast out away. So two no's in that verse, and then two aways, if you will. So I will not, never, ever cast them out away. Very strong language that Jesus uses in this verse. And I think those are some of the most comforting words that we have in all of Scripture, aren't they? Because how, how do you know if you are one whom the Father has given to the Son? Well, it's because you actually do sincerely and truly come to the Son. And the one who comes to the Son, what does the Son promise to do for them? He promises to receive them. That there's never even a hint, a shadow of a doubt, that if anyone comes to Jesus Christ in sincere faith, that they will find him giving them the stiff arm and saying, No, not you. You can't come. Other people can come, but not you. I don't know about you, but I've struggled with that in my life. I have struggled deeply with that for years, for like 8, 9, 10 years of my Christian walk. I've been walking with Christ for 20 years, and about half of that was simply struggling to come to a point where I was assured that I truly was a believer. I wanted to come to Christ. I wanted to know Him. I wanted to follow Him. I wanted to live a life that honored Him, but I wasn't convinced that He would welcome me. I wasn't assured that He would receive me. And I remember it was studying through this book and coming to this verse that finally began to give me some assurance that if I'm coming to Christ, then he's promised right here, there's never going to be a moment when I will find him rejecting me. That's comforting. Now there are those who are not given to the son and what do they do? They they don't come. They don't come to him because they don't want to come to him. They don't see why they should come to him. Jesus Christ doesn't mean enough to them for them to want to come to him. They take no pleasure in him. They're not satisfied in him. And and, and, and what, what he came to do and what he came to accomplish does not engage their hearts. They're in a very real sense dead to Him, and the truth about Jesus carries with, with it a stench of death to them. They, they don't want to come to Jesus. That's, there are people who are not given to Him. They are the people who do not come to Him, and they don't come to Him because they don't want to come to Him. And, and, and just... Be gracious with me today. Just... just as a parenthesis, as a parenthesis, you can be a wonderful pew sitter your entire life and still fit into that category. You can tithe, you, you, can, you can give to the church, you can be a, a wonderful, upstanding citizen in the community and, and be a moral person that names the name of Jesus, and yet still be one who who in reality, in your heart, you don't actually love Him. And you don't actually desire Him. And you're not truly and sincerely coming to Him. That's just something that If you haven't haven't wrestled through that reality, the Word of God, especially the Gospel of John, would call you to do so. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, we are called, each one of us, to examine ourselves, to, to test ourselves, to see if we're actually in the faith. We live in a day, I've said this before, we live in a day of such peanut butter grace. It's real thick and it's all cheap. Right? We just spread it over everything and we think that that peanut butter grace is God's saving grace. And, and, and countless numbers are deceived into thinking that they're actually true believers when they're not. Now I'm not here to try and get you simply to doubt whether you are or not a, a believer. I'm, that's not my intention. My intention is to, to urge you in to press in into a more sincere grappling with Christ the Savior until you come to the point when you know for sure that He saved you. Now, I'm not, I'm not like uh, you know, the evangelist that got me to get baptized my third time, who told me that if I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved, if I'm, if I'm not, here's what he said, if I'm 99% sure that I'm saved, that I'm 100% lost. hate to be that man standing before the Lord one day, give an account for the the lack of security that he instilled in the hearts of thousands of people. I'm not trying to be like that. But what I am trying to urge you towards is is a, a more intimate wrestling with Christ about the state of your soul that's going to have a radical impact on on the rest of your life and a radical impact on this church. That's that's the way to grow. You seek the Lord, and I'm trying to urge you towards that. So you you can be a a wonderful church member and still be a person in whose heart there's no real sincere love for Christ and no real sincere desire to come to Him. But if you do find the Son of God to be life-giving... And you do find Him to be soul-satisfying bread of life, that that bread that came down from heaven. When you come to Jesus and you hear the truth of His gospel, it's like you you can feel and you can taste the heavenly life that He's brought into this world. If that's you, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you have a desire to taste Him more and more, then you ought to take heart. Because that means that the Father has given you to His Son. And when you act on that impulse, that desire to come to Him, that desire to seek Him, you can rest assured that He will absolutely 100% receive you. Because you delight in Him. And that proves that He delights in you. And He delights to save you. Yeah, it's... That should give you much assurance. Now, now, why is it, though, that when Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Why does he say that? What, what does he ground that upon? What, upon what basis does he offer us that promise? This is really beautiful. And I, and I hope you can see this. It's in, Jesus gives the ground for that in verse 38. When, it, when he says, I, 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 the one who comes to me, I will never cast out because, verse 38, for, should, there should be a four there. For he came down because um, I've come down from heaven not to do the, my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's verse 38. Is there a slide there for verse 38? Probably not. I'm sorry. That's my bad. Well, look in your Bibles. Um, that'll, encu- that'll encourage you to bring a, a hard copy of, of, the, of your, your hard copy of Scripture to church. Stop putting the slides up here. But there it is. Yeah, verse, that's why I didn't see a 4 up there because it was verse 37. Verse 37 doesn't start with a 4. But verse 38... <laughs> The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what is the guarantee that those whom the Father gives to the Son, those who come to the Son, that the Son will not reject them? What guarantees that? Well, it's because that's the will of the Father. The will of the Father for His Son is that His Son would receive everyone who comes to Him. Because Jesus says, I've not come down from heaven to do my own will. That is, I don't have my own agenda here. I'm not working in contradiction or in in some way separated from that which the Father intends for me to accomplish. I'm not seeking to do my own thing. I'm here for one reason, and that is to accomplish everything that my Father has willed for me to accomplish. And that includes receiving everyone who comes to me, because everyone who comes to me was given to me by the Father. That means that, that if you're coming to Jesus, you are a gift of the Father to His Son. And His Son is not going to spurn or despise or reject A gift that his father is giving to him. You might be, you you are despicable. You are absolutely wretched in in and of yourself. You are a God-hating sinner, left to your own depravity. And the worst form of that God hate that, that hatred of God is indifference. And we were all there. That's what you are in yourself. And if you stood before God in yourself, that's exactly what he would see in you. And that's exactly what he would show you to be true about yourself. But that's not how he sees you in Christ. In Christ, you're precious in the sight of God. Not because of you, but because of the Father's choice to save you. He's given you to his son, and his son sees you as his father's precious gift to him. That's why he receives everyone who comes to him, because that's the will of his father. And he's going to make sure that he accomplishes that will in receiving them. So that's a general statement about the father's will in relation to those whom he's given to his son. The son will receive them, because that's his father's will. Now... Specifically, though, what is the purpose of the Father's will in relation to those whom he he gives to his Son? What, What specific purpose does the Father have in mind? Why does he want the Son to receive them? Why has he given them to the Son? Well, Jesus really explains that from two different angles in verses 39 and 40. So in verse 39, we've got, One angle of of answering that question, which is the father's will in relation to his son. The father's will in relation to his son. Jesus says in verse 39, this is the will of the father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So the father's will for his son is to make sure that he does two things in relation to everything that the father has given him. There are two things that the son must do in order to do the father's will for those who are given to him. Number one, the son must make sure that he does not lose anything that the father has given him. And secondly, the son must make sure that on the last day the day of judgment, everything that the father has entrusted into his hands gets raised up. So He's responsible. the father has made the son responsible to make sure, this is the father's will for his son, you make sure you don't lose anything that I have put into your hand. And secondly, you make sure that on the last day, the day of judgment, everything I've put into your hand gets raised up. This is is magnificent. Now, as we start to get into this, I hope you're going to see that, but as we start to get into this, what exactly is this text talking about when it refers to everything that's been given to Jesus by the Father? What, What does that everything entail? What all does that involve? Well, there's a sense in which this includes everything in creation. I mean, literally everything in creation. Plants, animals, the earth, uh, solar system, the the Milky Way galaxy, the universe, uh, everything in all of creation, from from the cosmic scale down to the microscopic and and, and subatomic particle scale, everything in between, it's all given by the Father into the hands of his Son so that one day the Son might raise all of it up. You remember Romans 8, 20 and 21. You know, some people ask, are there going to be animals in heaven? Well, no, there won't be animals in heaven. But I believe there will be animals on the new earth. Isn't that God's intention? To bring the entirety of his creation to conformity to his perfect will and design for it? And to to glorify it through his son. Isn't that what... Jesus came to do, and that's why the world that is to come is subject to him. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. The world that's coming is subject to Jesus Christ. Well, remember Romans 8:20 20 and 21. All creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. When did that happen? And under whose watch did that happen? It happened in the beginning, and it happened under Adam. Adam was responsible to make sure that that as the head of the entire human race and the one to whom the entire uh, realm of creation was subjected. This is why Adam was commissioned to go forth and rule over God's creation as his image bearer. The entire world was subjected to his rule and reign as a representative of the Lord God Almighty. Okay, now where was I going with that? When, yeah, Adam was responsible to make sure that all of creation reached the glory that God intended for creation to reach. This is what it means in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not merely talking about your personal sinning. That's talking about the fact that we are all in a state of corruption because of our fall in Adam. That Adam Adam has fallen from the glory of God in such a way that everything that was entrusted into Adam's hands fell from that glory with him. That includes you, that includes me, that includes the entirety of creation. But notice in Romans 8.21, All of creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation itself would be set free and would one day partake, would be set free from its slavery to corruption and would one day partake in the glory of the sons of God. The liberty, the glorious liberty of the children of God. That means, and that tells us, that it is God's intention for all realms in this fallen creation to be redeemed one day. And so... In John 6, 39, when Jesus says everything has been given into my hands by the Father, this could be referring to that part of this big sweeping narrative of all of Scripture about everything that God is accomplishing and doing in this world. That, that, that the Father has sent forth His Son into the world. He's taken everything that was entrusted to Adam all of ruined creation, everything that was enslaved to corruption because of Adam's fall, he's taken all of that that was subjected to futility, and he's placed it in the hands of his son and commanded his son, fix it. Go fix it. Go make it right. Go redeem it. Go raise it up from its ruin. Bring it to glory, the glory that I intend for the world to have. You go make things right. That is what God the Father has commissioned His Son to do and that is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do on the last day, right? Isn't that the new heaven and new earth that we are all waiting for, 2 Peter 3? (laughs) That world where righteousness dwells? We're not going to have a place where righteousness dwells until the new world comes. But that is the world that Jesus Christ is going to raise up one day. He's going to take this fallen, corrupt Uh, depraved, uh, ruined uh, creation. And He's going to raise it up to what it was intended to be in Him. In fact, it's going to be glorified in Him. It's that day, that day of judgment, that last day when the earth is finally expunged of all evil and the wolf finally lies down with the lamb and the children play at the den of the cobra and the lion eats straw like the ox. What is all of that representing? That's representing the restoration of all parts of God's creation. I, I just full confession, if you believe in the millennial, uh, earthly millennial kingdom that we're still waiting for, I, I'm not going to condemn you for that, but I don't believe in that. I believe that this passage in Isaiah 11 is talking about the restoration of all creation. Because that's when the, that's when the lion's stomach is going to be changed so that it can finally handle eating straw rather than just meat. Amen? That's my reasoning anyway. But here's the major point. The larger point behind all of this is that Revelation 5 tells us that Jesus absolutely will accomplish this. He is the lamb standing as though slain. He is the one who was worthy to go take the scroll out of the Father's hand to plop, well, to to take his seat on on the throne of glory in heaven and then begin to unfold the the universal purposes of God the Father for his creation. That's what Jesus is doing right now. And one day he will bring Romans 8 to pass. So in John 6.39, yes, it includes that element of Jesus' work of restoring all creation. But there's something more specific that Jesus is referring to in John 6.39, isn't there? He's not just speaking generally of all creation in that passage. He's actually referring to that specific group of people whom the Father has given him to save. You know, that is that, that redemption of that group of people, that is the central focus of all redemption. The central focus is not the create uh, it's not it's not the, the trees outside being restored. It's not the animal kingdom being renewed. It's not the earth being renewed in and of itself. That's not the pinnacle and the climax of the focus of redemption. The pinnacle is the redemption of a people for God's own possession. That's what he's after. He's after a a group of redeemed image bearers who are going to finally and truly and purely reflect the glory of his image. That's what Jesus is after. It's those whom he gave to his son is the that's the central point that Jesus is making when he says that uh, everything that he's given into my hands, everything that the father has given to me, I am charged to make sure that I don't lose any of it, but I raise it up on the last day. He's talking about his people. That's the main reason why God the Father sent His Son into the world, so that He would bear the responsibility, so that the Son would bear the responsibility of fulfilling every promise the Father has made with regard to His chosen and elect people. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, some examples that I could think of as I was preparing for this, just a few of them, would include... God's promise revealed in Hebrews two ten. That it's the Father, it's the Father's purpose, that there would be many sons brought to glory. Now, sons, there you can please just read that as children. Okay, don't be offended. Women will be saved. He, God has daughters, not just sons. But speaking generally, there. The Father has purposed to bring many sons to glory, many, many children, many, many descendants of Adam to glory. And it's the Son's responsibility, you notice, to make sure that they actually reach glory. The Father has purposed to bring them to glory, but it's the, it's the Son who actually accomplishes the, the work of bringing them to glory, and it's accomplished through His work of suffering. Suffering on their behalf, right? Tasting death for everyone so that he might bring them to glory with him. That's part of the Father's purpose. God the Father, in other words, has entrusted this, this group of sons into... Actually, you notice in Hebrews 2.13 that Jesus, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews calls this group of sons whom Jesus is bringing to glory, he calls this group or refers to them as the children whom God has given me. Look at that language. That tells us that this is not merely speaking of the general mass of humanity. This is talking about a group of children whom the Father has entrusted to the care of the Son. It's those for whom Jesus tastes death. It's those, uh, it's, 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 it's those whom Jesus is going to bring to glory. So, in other words, God the Father has entrusted these children to his Son to ensure that Jesus not only attains glory for himself, but also brings all of his children to glory with him. So, that's one aspect of what it means for the Son to fulfill every promise the Father's made in regard to his people. Or you could also look at Matthew 25 34 where we're told that from the foundation of the world, the Father promised to give His people a kingdom. This is a kingdom that has been promised to them as an inheritance from before the founding of the world, before creation ever began to exist. The Father promised to a specific people, I have prepared a kingdom for you. And you notice in this context, it's the king who is bidding these people to come in and receive their kingdom. Who is that king? It's the son. That's right, it's Jesus Christ. It's the son, in other words, it's the son's responsibility to make sure that those people to whom the Father promised to give this kingdom before the foundation of the world, it's Jesus' responsibility to make sure that they receive the promised inheritance. I get excited about this, but you may not. But Titus chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. God the Father has promised His elect people the hope of eternal life. You see there in verse 1, it talks about God's elect. And then you go down to verse 2, and it talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised when? Before time began. I love that translation. That is exactly what it says. Before time ever began, God promised His elect people the hope of eternal life. And the Son is the one whom the Father has sent into the world to secure that gift for them and to make sure that that hope of eternal life is not a vain hope. It's a hope that is secured. It's a hope that is purchased with His own blood. It's a hope that is made secure and steadfast and firm in the reality of His resurrection. That's what the Son came to accomplish for His people. And listen... You can think that these, these purposes of God and these promises of God are just general promises to whoever's willing to receive them, but that's not what the rest of Scripture would tell us. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, it tells us that there are certain people whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. That is, these are specific people, specifically named people. The Lauren Hubans, I don't get to say this one very often. The Josiah Hubans, the Terry Ragsdales, right? The Nick Mateys. All of us who are believers in this room, there are specific names that the Father has written in the Lamb's book of life, and when did He write them down? Before time began. Before time began. This is why Jesus says in John 10, whenever he calls his own sheep, he calls them by name. Because he knows them specifically. He knows them individually. And they come. One more. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. When God saves anyone, it was according to his own purpose and grace which he gave us, Paul says, from before time began. It's another one. Before time began... God gave us a purpose to save us by grace. From all eternity past, God the Father has established His purpose to demonstrate the glory of His goodness by saving sinners according to grace. But notice this, that from all eternity, that purpose of God, that purpose to give us grace, was always and only viewed as coming to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Son has eternally been commissioned by the Father to ensure that His purpose of grace would be brought to its full realization in the lives of those whom the Father wants to save. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? That hurts when I talk this loud. <laughs> But let me talk this loud for just a minute. From all eternity, God has decreed that He would save you by name. And He put your name in the hand of His Son to guarantee that that decree would come to pass. That's that's the whole point I'm trying to make. That's the whole... That's the whole point that Jesus is making in John six thirty nine when he says, I am commissioned by my Father to make sure that I lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, much more, much more could be said about this. But you need to understand something as a believer about what this is saying. You need to understand this. If the son does not succeed in accomplishing this particular and specific will of his father, then what does that mean about the son? Let me rephrase that. If there's even one person whom the father has given to his son to save... If there's even one sinner whom the Father has entrusted to his Son to redeem, that the Son ultimately does not save and does not redeem, what does that mean about the Son's mission? It's a failure. Because the commissioning of the Son in John six thirty nine is... You will not lose a single one that I have entrusted to you, but you will raise them all up on the last day. That's the commissioning. That's the standard. That's the Father's will for His Son. Now, if the Son raises all of them up except one, He has still failed to maintain the directives of His Father. Because on that day, when the majority of them have been raised up, there's still one that's missing. There's a lack of unity between Father and Son now. There's a failure on the part of the Son. In fact, there's something stronger than the will of God that has kept the will of God from coming to pass. Now, most people would say, yeah, that which is stronger than the will of God is the will of man. They chose not to come. That's foolishness. It really is. I don't mean that in a harsh way. That's just not thinking very clearly or correctly about the power and the nature of God. Who will thwart God's hand? Who who will cause God not to do what he wills? Doesn't the Lord reign in the heavens? Doesn't his sovereignty rule over all? Doesn't he who sits in the heavens do whatever he pleases? If even one sinner, of all of those sinners whom the Father has given to his Son to save, if even one sinner does not finally reach salvation and redemption on that last day, then the whole mission of the Son has failed. Now what that means for us, in light of the resurrection of Christ, the proof that he was not a failure, the proof that his job was completed, that his mission did succeed, that he did succeed in fulfilling it. In light of that resurrection, what that means for us practically is that it is impossible for you to be lost if you are one who has been given to his son. There's nothing in all creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus if the Father has placed you in the hands of his son. I mean, just think about it. What could ever rival the hand of God? Didn't Jesus say in John 10 that his people are, are, are in the hand of his father and his father's put them in the hand of his son? Are you, and and, and what, did, what else did Jesus say about that? That there's no one who is able to do what? To snatch them or to pluck them out of my hand. That is the bedrock of our security, beloved. It is not your ability to hold fast to Christ. It's the power of Christ that's holding on to you. And it's that, that's, that's what... Uh, those blood pressure changes, they just affect me. Um, this is what guarantees that even when you do sin against the Lord, you sin against the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, this is what guarantees that the Spirit will never say to you, I'm done working with you now. It's the finished work of Christ that guarantees that. It's the will of the Father that guarantees that there will never come a moment when the Father will declare to you as one of His children, my Spirit is not going to strive with you anymore. Now, you might be under the fatherly displeasure of God, which will lead to you being disciplined. You might not sense the light of His countenance upon your face. You might not have the light of glory shining upon your path as you walk with the Lord through this life because of your sin. But what the Lord's going to do with that sin is He's going to refine it out of you. He's going to discipline you and He's going to purge you and He's going to make you walk in the ways of the Lord. Because He will not forsake His commitment to bring you to glory. He will not let you be lost. He is guaranteed through the blood of His Son and through the resurrection of His Son and through the ascension of His Son and the intercession of His Son on your behalf and the return of His Son to take you back home with Him. He has guaranteed that you will never be lost. Ever. That's that's the ammunition that you've got to take with you when you walk out of this room. And the devil starts throwing charges against you about your own unfaithfulness, about all the bad things that you know you've done against the Lord. Yes, Satan's going to come up and he's going to accuse you because that's where his power lies now. He no longer has the power of death. He only has the power to try to accuse you I love what John Piper said about the devil right now in in this day of Christ power. The devil is a a fangless, toothless foe. He tries to bite at you, but he only has gums. Now, sometimes you you have an old lady. I've worked in nursing homes before ministering to people. There's an old lady that that will almost feel like they're going to take your finger off if they get that finger inside their mouth. I was feeding a woman, okay? I wasn't just putting my hand in her mouth. (laughs) Oh, don't make me laugh. Gum, you bite down with your gums, there's a lot of pressure there. The devil comes accusing your conscience of how sinful you really are. Even as a redeemed child of God, there's a lot of pressure there. And, And your conscience can be weighed down under the weight of that guilt. What you've got to do in that moment is do exactly what Martin Luther said. (laughs) Do exactly what Martin Luther did. Yes, I'm guilty. What of it? What of it? Of course I'm a sinner. But that's exactly who Jesus came into this world to save. He came to save sinners. That, That means I'm qualified. Yes, I did that. But I know One who has made satisfaction in my place, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for my sin. And the fact that that propitiation was worthy and acceptable for that sin that I committed is proven by his resurrection from the dead and his ascendance to glory in heaven. You got to fight. This is putting on the full armor of God. You take these truths and you fight and you wrestle with them. Oh, we're going to end there and come to the table, but John 6, 39, this is the will of the Father who sent our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, that of all that he has given him, the Son would lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's your security, and that is your assurance. If you don't taste that assurance, if you don't experience that assurance in light of that truth, then you need to do some real heart searching. And you need to have some times of wrestling with Christ until He assures your soul that you are kept and safe in Him.